Welcome to the Discover Uncover podcast series. I'm Todd Slisher, the Executive Director of the Sloan Museum of Discovery and Longway Planetarium in Flint, Michigan. Our mission is to engage communities on a learning journey in history and science. Sloan Museum is the caretaker of nearly 50,000 artifacts in the Flint region's fascinating past. Curator of collections, Jeff Whitcox, and our community engagement coordinator, Jerome Threlkeld, will take you on a journey back in time using the historical artifacts from our collection as a jumping off point. We hope you come away with a deeper sense of Michigan's history and how the objects and stories of the past relate to today's culture, customs, and society. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the Discover Uncover podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Discover Uncover podcast at Sloan Museum of Discovery in Flint, Michigan. We are so happy that you tuned in, and we're going to go behind the scenes with some of our wonderful artifacts. I am Jerome Thrillkill, Community Engagement Coordinator, and I am honored to be here with our Curator of Collections, Mr. Jeff Wilcox. How Hello. are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. One of the things we wanted to start with is most of our episodes, we ask if anyone has anything to say or um, a reaction to anything that was shared to call in or to email us. And we actually had someone to email us, and we want to start with that today. Jeff, would you be willing to share? Absolutely. Sure. I mean, uh, we had our first comment from a Tracy Madison who said that she enjoyed the podcast. Uh, she moved to Genesee County in 1990 in the actual city of Flint in 2016 and is really enjoying hearing a little bit more about Flint history, which is great. We love getting comments like that. Uh, we would really love to hear what you think about all of this and any suggestions that you have, any topics that you're interested in. Uh, we'd love to hear about that from you. But we did get a question. Before we go to this next question, I just want to say thanks so much, Tracy. We really appreciate your comments. You had no idea that we're starting something new, and so we're glad that you're enjoying it, and hopefully others are enjoying it as well. So let's go to our next uh, email. Absolutely. So we got uh, actually a question about one of our episodes about okay. the Beecher Tornado. And we got an email from Blair at our uh, podcast email address saying that she had listened to it with some of her coworkers, and one of them was actually alive at the time of the Beecher Tornado. Uh, one of the things that uh, he mentioned is that his third grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Gintner from Freeman Elementary, told his class about the tornado and how her son had been in it and had not survived. Oh, wow. And so uh, one of the things that they were wondering is if the Flint Journal had ever uh, posted a list of those who had been killed. And we found actually that they had. And there is a Rayford Paul Ginter, age 14, who's listed as um, among the dead, and actually found him in the U.S. Census in 1940. And his mother was Pauline Ginter, who was a school teacher. So I would say that um, that's the same child that they were talking about um, at work. So, you know, I'm glad to hear that you know, our podcast is generating some discussion amongst people. That's kind of the point of it. And, you know, we're so happy to be able to share some of the resources that we have here and the information that we have here. So, yeah, I want to say thanks, Blair, as well, for sending your questions. Jeff mentioned that we do have an email address. If you have any questions or comments to anything that you hear or just something comes up that you're interested in, that email address is podcast at sloanlongway.org. Or you can give us a call at 810 237 3417. Today, let's get into our topic for today. So today we're talking about the sit-down strike. I will know that this month is like the anniversary of the ending of the of the strike. 
Um, am I right about that? Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, the Flint sit-down strike ends on February 11th, 1937. So this seemed like a great month to talk about the sit-down strike. Let's talk about it. Uh, well, it begins December 30th, 1936. And, you know, 1936, the auto industry actually isn't that old here in Flint. I mean, GM was formed in 1908, so at this point it's less than 30 years old, which is hard to imagine. And working standards are very different, the 1920s and 1930s, and the conditions are actually pretty harsh. And so people were starting to become discontented. They wanted to make some changes, and that's what brought about the sit-down strike. So when you say conditions are different than they are now and that they're pretty harsh, like what were some of those conditions and what was the harshness maybe? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is an age before air conditioning really exists and, and oh, is wait in a widespread minute. use. Wait a minute, wait. You said before air conditioning? Yes. But you know, I'm always hot, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, <could have> <laughs> I, need, I need air conditioning right now. If I... <laughs> Without air conditioning, a lot of these plants that the guys were working in could get well over 100 degrees during the summer, 110, 115. Wow. You would have people passing out, but no one could stop to help them because if you stopped working, stepped away from the line for any reason, you could be let go. Oh, okay. There was no minimum wage at that time. The line could be sped up, sometimes to an unreasonable speed with no input from the workers, and it might be too fast and weren't allowed to take bathroom breaks while you were working. No talking during lunch breaks. So, I mean, it's really kind of a harsh working environment during this time. They just said enough is enough. We're just sick of this. So how do they band together? The United Auto Workers, which is the major union, of course, that's throughout the auto industry today. Yes. They were trying to get a start in the mid-1930s and realized that they needed to have a major event. Okay. Um, to really gain some legitimacy and to really make a statement. And so they start trying to unionize in the city of Flint. It doesn't go real well. They don't really have many members during this early period. In fact, there's a lot of hostility to the unions. I mean, Flint in the 1930s really is a company town. Okay. You know, GM controls a lot of the city government, the police force, the elected officials, all of that. And so we have a story of a UAW official who comes here in the mid 30s, 1934, 35. He checks into his hotel downtown, and within a few minutes of him checking in, he gets a hostile phone call from somebody telling him, Don't cause any trouble or you're going to regret it, basically. Mm, okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on during this time period. So they start planning the strike, and it kind of happens uh, sort of impromptu, December 30th. They had made a plan that they were going to take a plant where uh, that held a lot of dyes that were used to make parts that are used in plants throughout the country. And so they decided to take this one plant, 8 a.m. December 30th, 1936. Now, what plant was that? I believe it was Fisher Body Number 1 uh, was one of those that was involved. In fact, for our listeners, uh, you can see behind us this large metal window. That's actually a window from one of the plants that was actually involved in the strike. Wow. You know, the idea behind a sit-down strike is you occupy the plant, you sit down at the machines, that's where it gets its name, and mm -hmm. that keeps other people from being able to use it. It's essentially occupying the plant. Got it. Got it. And so how long did they stay in that? Uh, so they were there for 44 days, and eventually the strike actually expands to other plants. And we actually have a personal account from a worker who was there, and his name was Ward Lindsay. Uh, we got this donation in 2020 from, I believe it was either his son or his grandson, uh, gave this letter to us that he had written from inside one of the plants, and the date is February 2nd, 1937. So we're about nine days before the end of the strike at this point. It's February 11th, and he writes about how he's okay.
okay. They took the plant like a clock. Basically what he's referring to is the union had made GM think that they were gonna take one plant, but then they rushed in and took another. And so that's what he's talking about right there. He talks about how he has plenty of food. The company cops were up in plant number nine, which is the one they made them think they were gonna take. So it's a really interesting account. I mean, he wrote this to his wife, Edna. They live on 3421 Arlene Street here in Flint. I know Arlene Street. That, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so that was definitely a strategized plan mm-hmm. you know, to throw the company off. Absolutely. Um, One thing that you really have to understand, though, is the risk that goes behind this. I mean, this is 1936-37. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of the Great Depression. We have a lot of people who are unemployed. And a lot of these guys, just like Ward Lindsay, who we just talked about, he's got a family to support and feed. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, if you go into this strike and you defy your employer and you fail, there's a lot on the line. I mean, that took a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. What a sacrifice, I mean, to not only do that for yourselves, but you're almost well, anyone that comes after you as well. It's like, mm-hmm. this is just enough. Can't deal with that. No one should live in these type of conditions. And I'm going to sacrifice whatever. I'm going to go mm-hmm. all out for this cause. That mm-hmm. was a dedication. It is. And it's not just that kind of a sacrifice. There's also a lot of physical danger that's associated with this. And so you can imagine there was a lot of hostility uh, when this plant was taken over. I mentioned that Flint was a company town. Yes. So at one point, the Flint Police Department actually attacked the plants and tried to drive the workers out. Uh, Several of the workers were shot. The police were ultimately driven back by the workers throwing things like hinges, heavy metal hinges out the window. Yeah, I I remember the the clashing of glass. I remember that, and that Mm -hmm. that was in retaliation. So we have this group called the Women's Emergency Brigade. It's women, a lot of them were wives of the workers who were inside uh, striking. And they came to the site of one of the plants that was being occupied. And the idea behind it was they thought that the police would be less likely to physically attack if there were women present. Uh, There were also children who were there as well. And so what was happening is uh, the police were shooting tear gas into one of the plants and the women broke out the windows to let the the tear gas out. And so you can actually see a picture of that here in the exhibit. Really? Wow. The strike itself really was a moment where a lot of different types of people came together. You know, 1930s, 1940s, the plants are heavily segregated by race. You don't have many women who are working in the plants. Uh, We actually have a person of color who participated in the strike. His name was Roscoe Van Zandt. He's the only uh, black person that we know of who participated in the strike. Yeah, I read up on Mr. Van Zandt. Pretty interesting. I mean, I heard something about in the segregation, uh, even inside, while they were there those 44 days, they ended up bringing him, you know, into the Brotherhood and allowed him to even sleep on the cot. I heard, read something about that. And then I think he was the one carrying the American flag when it mm-hmm. came out. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. We have more artifacts on display here. So can you talk more about how things resolved or what actually happened? Yeah, we do have a lot of information here about how the strike resolved. The state government and the federal government really left GM on its own to negotiate. They had been asked to intervene. 
Uh, President Franklin Roosevelt said he would not. The state of Michigan, the governor at the time, he sent in the Michigan National Guard, but only to prevent property destruction. It wasn't to break the strike at all. Okay. And so that left General Motors with relatively few options. And so finally, February 11th, 1937, they're forced to recognize the UAW. And I mentioned instantly that gives the union legitimacy. Yeah. And pretty much overnight, the entire auto industry unionizes. Hundreds of thousands of workers are now part of this union. And some of the demands that the UAW had was, you know, recognition of the union, fair pay, a 30-hour work week, say on how fast the line could move, seniority rights for workers, and also reinstatement of workers who had been fired because they were part of the union. Because prior to this, being part of a union in the auto industry was a fireable offense. Really? Wow. Yes. That's interesting because, you know, I grew up here and, you know, benefactor of the union. My dad worked at GM as well, and so was, I believe, Local 598, to know that they could get fired or even signing up to be a part of the union. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what else? Well, I mean, I really think this has a huge impact on not only Flint, but the auto industry uh, throughout the nation. I mean, I've heard Flint called the home of the middle class in the 1950s and 1960s, and mm-hmm. I would say this victory had a huge part in making it that way. Yeah, I just want to personally say to all those that, that took the risk, I thank you for taking that risk. And um, all of us who are descendants of those or those who are benefactors of those, we definitely salute you and we appreciate you making that sacrifice because being dedicated to that cause, that is that's awesome. It, it's interesting because for as significant as this event was in local history, we have relatively few artifacts that are associated with the strike itself. This letter that I referenced earlier in our conversation, that just came in in 2020. One of the items over your shoulder here for our listeners is a club that was made during the sit-down strike that we have on the wall here in the exhibit. Really, that's about it as far as artifacts. We don't even have that many documents about this. So, you know, one thing I guess I would entreat of our listeners and our viewers is if you have any artifacts from a relative associated with the Flint sit-down strike, we would encourage you to reach out because we really don't have many to tell this story. We mostly just have photographs. Wow. Well, thank you so very much for tuning into this edition of Discover Uncover podcast. If you have any thoughts or if you have any family memories of the sit-down strike or just want to share how this strike has impacted your life and your family, we would love for you to reach out to us at area code 810-237-3417 or you can email us at podcast at sloanlongway.org. Thanks so much, Jeff, for always being um, so knowledgeable and so thoughtful in your delivery. And I thank you all for tuning in to another edition of Discover Uncovered Podcast. Have a great day.